Charles Spurgeon was a successful man, a brilliant, well-read, uh, a great sense of humor, a hearty laugh, uh, ex- an exemplary love for Jesus. His nickname is the Prince of Preachers. Wow, imagine that. And Spurgeon's life was filled with suffering. Uh, before he was saved, he was miserable, lost, helpless, and hopeless. At age 22, he was pe- preaching to a packed house, over 10,000 people at the Surrey Gardens Music Hall in London. Uh, thousands of people were outside, couldn't get in. And while preaching, someone yelled, fire, the galleries are giving way, the place is falling. People trampled people uh, as they stormed the exits. Seven people died. And 28 people were uh, badly injured. Spurgeon was never the same. His wife wrote, My beloved's anguish was so deep and violent that reason seemed to totter in her throne, and we sometimes feared that he would never preach again. Spurgeon struggled with deep depression. He suffered from Bright's disease, gout, rheumatism, and neuritis. He was overworked and stressed, and he felt guilty about his stress, all the while facing controversy, public criticism, slander, and scorn. Yet one historian said about Spurgeon, in all this, Spurgeon believed that God had a good purpose in all his suffering, and because of it felt he had become a better prepared and more compassionate pastor. Spurgeon said, when the gold knows why and wherefore it is in the fire, It will thank the refiner for putting it into the crucible and will find a sweet satisfaction even in the flames. God's sovereignty comforted Charles Spurgeon. That's why he said, when you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you lay your head. And God's sovereignty is not simply about pain and suffering. It is also about pleasure and success. God's sovereignty is the catalyst which excites humility and gratitude in his children. Some Christians, they want to affirm God's sovereignty and power, but at the same time deny his absolute control, which is a denial of his sovereignty. One professing Christian said, quote, God is not in control. As a Christian, this comforts me. It's the kind of thing that oppressors tell the oppressed to maintain the status quo. Just accept your suffering. God has a reason for this. What a horrible lie, end of quote. Another professing Christian said, quote, the man-made doctrine that God is in control is blasphemy, end of quote. He, he also said it was from Satan. These are professing Christians, not atheists and agnostics, likely all using Scripture to support their view. Is it blasphemy to say that God is in control, or is it worship? And I hope you find God's sovereignty and control deeply comforting, assuring, and pleasing to your soul. I hope none of you cringe at it, but odds are some of you don't find God's sovereignty comforting, assuring, pleasing, or hopeful. Whatever your view, wherever you're coming from, my aim is to preach Scripture clearly and candidly so the Spirit of God gives you sweet satisfaction in His supremacy and efficacy even in suffering. I want to encourage you, encourage you with these three simple biblical truths. Number one, God has a good plan. Number two, God is working out His good plan. 
And number three, nothing can thwart God's good plan. All three are indispensable to covenant theology. Last week, I tried to show from Scripture that for God to be God, He must possess absolute supremacy in and over everything, and indeed He does. God reigns supremely, rules supremely, and is superior in every way. Today, my focus is God's absolute efficacy. Well, that's not a common word that we use, all right? You might be like, efficacy? What uh, century is He coming from? But, uh, but this is a good word, and here, here's what I mean. To say God possesses absolute efficacy is to say God possesses absolute power and ability to do whatever he wants to do. Psalm 125 verse 6 says, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. In other words, God is unstoppable in all that he chooses to do. He is always successful. God's absolute efficacy is also his divine control or direction of all things. We could use the word ascendancy, which means God possesses governing and controlling power in and over everything. So God's absolute efficacy means God has a good plan. God is working out his good plan. Nothing can thwart God's good plan, which is logical for a supreme being who we call God. If anything suppresses God, God is not God. This line of thought does beg the question, if God is absolutely sovereign, how do we make sense of the existence of evil? How do we explain evil? Well, that's a great question, and it is too time-consuming for this particular sermon. Uh, Plus, I don't have a definitive explanation, nor does anyone else that I'm aware of. But I do know Scripture teaches these four truths. God is all-powerful, God is sovereign, God is good, and evil exists. I recommend reading R.C. Sproul's article uh, titled, The Mystery of Iniquity. The link is, is in the sermon notes. As mysterious as, as the harmonization of God's sovereignty and the existence of evil is, simply look at the cross where God planned the horrific evil of his son's crucifixion in order to save his people to the praise of his glorious grace. And there you'll see God's unmitigated sovereignty in and over evil. Now for my, my main point, God possesses absolute efficacy in and over everything. I I gathered many texts together in in order to help you see God's efficacy in Scripture, and I realized I couldn't possibly cover them all. Um, Time has forced me to choose just a few. Uh, But for your studying pleasure and greater edification, I have made a list for you that you can research on your own. We begin with Joseph. Joseph's entire life in Genesis 37 through 50 is one of the best illustrations of God's absolute efficacy. His life even foreshadows Christ. Joseph is a type of Christ. Joseph had prophetic dreams about his supremacy over his brothers. His brothers hated him, planned to kill him, but instead sold him into slavery and lied about it to their father Jacob, who thought his son was dead for years. Joseph ended up in Egypt, and Pharaoh ended up giving him power over all Egypt. And eventually, Joseph's brothers did bow to him, as God decreed, but not without much suffering for Joseph. 
So turn to Genesis 45. I want you to see this in the text. You can grab a pew Bible if you don't have yours along. Genesis 45, 4 through 7. And I want you to listen to what Joseph told his brothers. Genesis 45, 4 through 7. I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. That's interesting. Joseph's brother's sin sent Joseph to Egypt. However, in the ultimate sense, God sent Joseph to Egypt. God was sovereign in and over their free, wicked actions. God had a plan, and he directed those events towards fulfillment of his covenant with Abraham. God sent Joseph, Abraham's great-grandson, to Egypt to rise to power and to preserve life. But he was only a foretaste of a greater ruler whom God sent to save and preserve life by giving his own life. Jump ahead to Genesis 50, verses 20 and 21. After Jacob died, Joseph's brothers feared their lives. They they pled for forgiveness. Uh, They fulfilled Joseph's prophetic dreams, and they fell before Joseph, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. And Joseph responded like this, 21 and... Uh, 20 and 21. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. His brothers meant evil. God meant it for good, and the evil committed against Joseph did work out for the good of him, his family, and God's people. Joseph clearly foreshadowed Christ, whom God also subjected to the great evil for the good of his people. Now rewind a bit. Imagine Jacob holding his beloved son's robe weeping at the horrific thought of Joseph being torn to pieces by wild animal by a wild animal and and you're with him in the tent not knowing what you know now would you have consoled Jacob by saying god is not in control jacob he 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 didn't want this to happen god is good and he would have stopped this if he could have There's more to the story. You can read it in Genesis. But at least this much is clear. God had a plan, a good plan. God worked out his plan, and not even the sinful actions of men could stop God's good plan. Now turn to Psalm 105, about in the middle of your Bibles. Psalm 105, verses 16 and 17. Here's a song that praises God's wondrous works, rejoices in God's covenant, and says about God's sovereignty in Joseph's life, Psalm 105, verses 16 and 17, when he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. God summoned the famine. 
God broke the supply of bread. God sent Joseph to Egypt as a slave. And God was acting in all of this for the good of his people. Has God not said, I make well-being and create calamity? I am the Lord who does all these things. Amos 3.6 states, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Micah 1.12 says, disaster has come from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. God orchestrated the details of Joseph's life for his glory and the propagation and blessing of his people. God is sovereign and good. Doesn't hearing that boost your confidence in God, boost your confidence in Christ? Dear brothers and sisters, I know it doesn't take away the pain of your tears, but it infuses them with purpose and confidence in God's sovereign and good plan for you. Next, Numbers 23, 19. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it. God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? You see, God is not human. He makes plans and promises and he he has the unrestricted power to accomplish all that he sets out to do. Now 2 Kings 19.25. 2 Kings 19.25, Isaiah prophesied against Sennacherib, king of Assyria. In all Assyria's success, God was sovereign and would bring judgment upon wicked Assyria. God said about Sennacherib, have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass, that you should turn fortified cities into heaps of ruins. God determined God planned Assyria's military success. They were a pagan nation. How do you explain that? But God promised to bring Sennacherib down, which he did. The angel of the Lord struck down 185,000 Assyrians that night, and eventually Sennacherib was murdered by his two sons. God has a good plan to conquer evil. God is working out his good plan. Nothing can thwart God's good plan plan and in the end good wins because God wins if you want a compelling look from scripture at God's efficacy read the book of Job I'll highlight Job 23 13 and 14 and then 42 verse 2 Eliphaz spoke out against Job and Job responded with a defense of his uprightness in chapter 23 in deep suffering Deep, deep suffering, Job hailed the absolute efficacy of God. He said this, but he is unchangeable, and who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does, for he will complete what he appoints for me, and many such things are in his mind. That's coming from a man who has suffered deeply. Job knew that God ordained his suffering. Job even said, God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. And then later in chapter 42, Job again affirmed God's absolute efficacy. He prayed, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Right there it is. That's what I'm trying to say. Now you may wonder... Why God purposes your pain. 
even your pleasure, if you think about it. And I don't ultimately know. I don't. But I do know that God graciously does it all for his glory, and he does it all for your greatest good as his beloved child. On the one hand, this is so confusing in suffering. And on the other hand, this is so comforting in salvation. God purposes our salvation. Therefore, it will be accomplished. Period. End of story. There is no debate for his children. Consider Psalm 33, verse 11. It says, The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Proverbs 19, 21 adds, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Saints, Scripture is clear. God has a plan and a purpose for everything and nothing can interfere. Let me show you two amazing texts from Isaiah. So turn to Isaiah 14, 24 through 27. Isaiah 14, then we're going to go to Isaiah 46, but for now 14. At the beginning of Isaiah 14, Isaiah expressed God's compassion for Israel and explained blessings that God would give them, including victory and rest from their pain, turmoil, and hard servitude. And that would only come if God's and Israel's enemies were conquered. So Isaiah prophesied against Syria. And keep in mind, this is hopeful and reassuring for God's people, but not for God's enemies. Isaiah prophesied this. The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so it shall be, and as I have purposed, so shall it stand, that I will break the Assyrian in my land, and on my mountains trample him underfoot, and his yoke shall depart from them, and his burden from their shoulder. This is the purpose that is purposed concerning the And this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? Is there any question in that prophecy? God planned, and it came to be. God purposed, and it cannot be annulled or prevented. Flip ahead to Isaiah 46. 9 through 11, Isaiah 46, 9 through 11, this is, this is a powerful statement of God's supremacy and efficacy. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. God promises to accomplish all his purpose. He leaves no room for debate. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. That is his absolute efficacy. Now, if I told you that next month I'm going to give each of you a $2 million check. And I added that I was hoping to get a second job in the meantime to make sure that I could pay. I think you'd think I was crazy. I hope you think that I would be crazy. 
But if I promised you that same gift with a $6 billion investment in the bank, you'd be excited. Pastor's going to keep his word. I'm going to retire today. Maybe some of you would, would think of it that way. The promises of God are empty without his ability to keep his promises. Daniel 4, 34 through 37. Daniel 4, 34 through 37. The story of Nebuchadnezzar is fascinating. You should read it closely. Uh, Makes you wary of pride in your life. Want to back down from thinking you're the stuff. Let's do that together. Anyway, God prophesied some bad stuff for King Nebi, as I affectionately call him. And, and he fulfilled it all. Nebi went crazy. And, and after suffering for his wickedness, he regained his reason. God gave it back to him. And he praised God. And he said this, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? He knew full well that the Lord brought suffering upon him as judgment. Yet he still praised God. And verse 37 tells us why. And this is an important line when considering the absolute efficacy of God. Nebuchadnezzar said, For all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Nebuchadnezzar was right. God always does according to his decretive will, what he appoints, what he decrees. As horrible as evil and suffering are, and as much as God hates evil and suffering, if God causes them in order to bring his people to himself and deepen their trust and enjoyment of him, has he not been good? Brothers and sisters, I don't mean to trivialize your suffering at all, but I want you to know that God's sovereignty and goodness in your suffering can refine, can strengthen your joy to indestructibility. This makes sense for God's children who want Jesus more than anything. It's not easy, but it makes sense And I hope that you desire Christ so much that this makes sense to you. Your Father loves you so much that He is willing to bring hard things to you so that you may more deeply enjoy Him and enjoy the best thing, Him, Him, and the Christ-likeness that comes from knowing Him. To the new covenant we go. Luke 22, verse 22. Jesus told his disciples in the upper room, For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And goes in that verse. That's a euphemism for dying. God determined and planned for his son to suffer and die a horrific death. Even Judas' demise was decreed by God, John 17, verse 12. Jesus believed in God's sovereign plan and absolute efficacy. And much more than 
painful crucifixion, Jesus suffered the pain of hell in his soul during his passion and crucifixion, all of which he believed was planned by the Father for him. Just think about, just think about for a moment Jesus' commitment and confidence in God's sovereignty. The same Greek word translated determined in Luke twenty two twenty two was used in Acts 2, 23. Please turn there. Acts 2, 23. Here in his uh, famous sermon at Pentecost, Peter affirmed God's sovereign plan and power. Peter was unambiguous. There's no way to spin this, folks. Listen to what he preached. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, Do you struggle with how God's sovereignty and human will and responsibility harmonize? That's tough, folks. Well, Acts 2.23 speaks directly to that. God has a sovereign plan and human will and responsibility fit into that sovereign plan. God planned the cross before the foundation of the world. Therefore, evil and sin and suffering must be part of God's sovereign and good plan. Jesus' unjust trial, sentence, and crucifixion happened according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. For the good of his people, for our good it happened. And yet Peter added, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That's human will and responsibility. They wanted to kill Jesus. God didn't coerce their will, but he is sovereign over it. Mysterious? Absolutely. Can I explain all of that to you? No. No. But it is all absolutely true in Scripture. Now turn ahead to Acts 4, 25 through 31. This one is a big one you got to get this one. Peter and John told his friends about the healing of the lame beggar and about their arrest and release, and they went to their friends, and their friends ended up praying and quoting David's prophecy, which is significant, about Gentiles, kings, and rulers plotting against the Christ, which is exactly what happened, and then they prayed this, for truly in this city... There were gathered against, together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. First, David's prophecy was fulfilled. God had a good plan. Second, Herod Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and Israel all freely did what God had decreed. God had a good plan. Third, the unjust trial, sentence, suffering, and crucifixion of God's Son, done freely by wicked men, were all predestined by God. God has a good plan. Do you cringe at the idea of predestination? Some Christians do. I know that. Some act as if it's not even in the Bible, which is a serious error. But can you see from Acts 4 that predestination is vital to the cross of Jesus Christ, and therein it is vital to your redemption in Christ? 
I don't know too many Christians who want to argue away the free, wicked actions of Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and the Jews in the crucifixion of Christ, but why do so many want to argue away God's free will? Acts 4.28 is clear. God freely chose to predestine the suffering and crucifixion of His Son, Jesus Christ, for the redemption of His people. God has a good plan. God is working out His good plan. Nothing can stop God's good plan. The life of Paul is certain proof of God's absolute efficacy. God had a plan for Paul, Acts 9, 15, and 16. After Paul met Jesus and and was struck blind, God told Ananias this, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. God chose Paul to preach the gospel to the world. That's called election. That God-ordained plan would result in great suffering for Paul. Read 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three through 28 to see just how much suffering God brought to Paul. It's horrible stuff. I mean, very painful things. He had a painful life. Now, Take a step back. If you were there in Paul's day, right next to Paul, counseling Paul at that time, would you have told him, Paul, God is not in control. God loves you, Paul, and he would never, ever plan suffering for your life. Well, that kind of thinking would have been utterly foolish to Paul. He would have written you off completely. Considering divine revelation told him otherwise. Talking about affliction, Paul told the Thessalonians, For you yourselves know that we were destined for this. For we were with you, for when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction. Just as it has come to pass, and just as you know, beloved brothers and sisters, this is not meant to confuse you or or somehow harden your heart towards God. It is meant to comfort you and to assure you in suffering. It is meant to build your confidence in your loving Father who is with you and will never forsake you and is in the process of blessing you even in the worst of suffering. He's blessing you with His presence and it will be yours forever to enjoy. He loves you and He promises to use your worst suffering for His glory and for your eternal joy. Why would any Christian want to argue that blessing away by limiting God's sovereignty in any way? It is a stalwart in the worst of times. I'll mention these two texts quickly. Listen carefully. In Ephesians 1 verse 11, Paul said that God works all things according to the counsel of His will. That means God's decretive will And then in Romans 8.28, Paul said that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Either that is true or that is a lie. Either God is telling you the truth or he is lying to you so that you can somehow limp through life. 
This is not a coffee mug verse that we should just quote to people in suffering because we don't know what to say. Yet at the same token, this is the truth they need. This is the bedrock of their soul, of their faith. God is working for his good. It's a promise to you, his people who love him. As mysterious as that is, it promises good for those who love God. A promise which anchors their soul in the tempest of suffering. Do you love God? Do you love God? Then the sovereignty of God is working for your good right now. Right now. And that's a promise that you should hear and say, yes, that is so comforting, God. I know there's purpose and meaning in this. I can't see straight right now. I just weep my eyes out at night. But I trust you. You are precious. You are who I want. You are who I need. And you have this. And you have me. And I am comforted that. In fact, I'm going to have faith and trust in you that this is true because you tell it to me in your word. It is unambiguous. God is sovereign. I'll wrap up after Luke 22, 39 through 44. Jesus was praying in agony in the garden of Gethsemane. He sweated blood. The cup of God's ferocious wrath would be emptied out on him in a moment. Hell was coming for Jesus, and he knew it. He prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Think about that. Not my will, but yours be done. Your will, Father, is what I want most, even if it kills me. In the face of not just physical pain, but suffering hell in his soul on the cross. And God did not relent. God did not show mercy. Isaiah 53 verse 10 tells us exactly what the Father had willed for his precious son. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Jesus prayed for the will of his Father to be done, and it was done in the suffering of crucifixion and the hell of God's unbearable wrath and justice. God is sovereign. God killed his Son. It is a supremely beautiful thing to pray with all your heart, not my will, but yours be done. That sounds like the prayer of a Christian. That prayer arises from hearts that trust in the absolute supremacy and efficacy of God. Christ suffered hell for you, dear people of God, so that you could pray that prayer and mean it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not my will, Father, but yours be done. Your will is what I want. A prayer that is prayed in light of God's eternal joy and blessing. Saints, I realize that this triggers all kinds of complex questions. But at a certain point, we have to realize this is who God revealed himself to be. If we argue against this, we argue against his direct self-revelation of himself to be a sovereign God. He is sovereign. He is efficacious. He is a God who possesses absolute supremacy in and over everything. Do you want to see the beauty of God's absolute efficacy? Then, my friends, look to Christ. 
Look to the cross. He came and did the impossible. He controlled his human flesh unto perfect obedience to the law. He controlled and overturned the laws of science. He controlled demons. He controlled diseases. He controlled the destiny of his disciples and ultimately all of God's people. Is God God not in control for our good? Dear parents, uh, when you drop your children off at, at your grandparents, at their grandparents' house, do you want grandma and grandpa to be in charge and in control? Uh, if my dear son Andrew bolts from my parents' house towards busy Railroad Avenue, which is a death trap, if you're ever at my parents, please be careful pulling out of their driveway. North Railroad Avenue. I want my mom to be in control by running after my precious son and graciously overriding his little stubborn will by picking him up and returning him to safety, whether he's screaming or whether he's laughing. Either way, someday, someday, he will be grateful for grandma's control, which conquered his little stubborn will in order to save him for his joy. Now, I understand that word, control, can conjure up images of fascists and abusive relationships. But you know what, friends? It can invoke images of love and service. The airline pilot who controls the plane, the parent or grandparent who protects the child, the cowboy, yeehaw, who jumps up on the runaway carriage and he tames those horses. We cheer at that control. Control is often beautiful and exactly what we need to be safe and secure in God's hands. Don't argue that blessing away. What difference does all this make? Well, I'll just say it makes a huge difference. Huge in your everyday life. Now, now there are many applications, many different ways that we could go with this right now, but I'll just give you two, confidence and comfort. That's it, confidence and comfort. The Heidelberg Catechism helps us apply all this quite well. It says this, beautiful writing. Thank you, your sinus. You were brilliant. We love you. We can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his love for all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. Oh, yes. Man, do you all have a copy of the Heidelberg? Get a copy. We'll give it to you for free. Read that thing. It will comfort you in all kinds of ways. God has a good plan He is working out his good plan, and nothing can thwart his good plan. This should give us tremendous confidence in God and comfort in his sure promises that are for us. Now, I'll just say this. There are exciting things coming ahead of us in this series. Some stuff's really going to start tying together as we unfold these things and watch how God's sovereign plan and his sovereign covenants and his sovereign grace unfolds in Scripture. So hang tough. We've got some great things coming. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are sovereign and you have left no question. You're in control. If you're not, you're not God. 
You are sovereign. You are efficacious. You are in control, and it is all a good plan. And no, we are not God. Therefore, we cannot understand all of your plan. And so, God, I just pray for for beautiful humility in us as we read God's word, that we would not presume that we know better than you. You have revealed yourself as sovereign in your word, and we must believe it, even if we have massive questions. And if you tell us it's good and that if we love you, you'll work all things, even evil, sin, mistakes, horrible things for our good, if that's what you tell us and that's actually true, then help us to believe it. And to not doubt that you, by being sovereign, you are somehow evil or the originator of evil. So God, help us to be very humble in how we read Scripture and interpret it. That we do not put ourselves at the center, but we put you at the center. You are at the center, whether we put you there or not. You are the point of Scripture. It is your glory, and then our joy is your chosen people in your glory. So I pray that for those who are so deeply suffering right now, God, that they would not bristle at this, but instead they would be deeply comforted and that they would pour out their soul to you in prayer and pour it out over Scripture so that your promises would inform them in their suffering. That is what they need. That is what we all need when we suffer, God. We need your promises of hope that are secure in Christ and secure by your sovereign hand. We want those. We need those. Would you tell us again, God? Would you tell us over and over these precious truths of your sovereignty? And may they be a comfort to our soul. May they be the assurance of our salvation and may they be the joy of our lives because we have a Father who loves us and will bring us home. And our suffering will, it it does have an end and then eternal joy with you. Help us to love that and cherish it. In Jesus' name and for his glory we pray, amen.